What I am going to try and talk about today, as well as a little bit about my research, is maybe I'm first of all going to talk about infertility and also about miscarriage and about the, it's a very general way, about the similarities between them, and then talk about how they're both related and what happens during assisted reproductive technologies. And then at the end, if there's a bit of time, I'll talk about my research as well. But I wanted to try and make it a bit broader so that it was a bit more about um, miscarriage to do with the um, seminar series. So forgive me, I know lots of you all know lots of this already, but yes, yes, of course I can, sorry. So um, infertility. So um, infertility is a medicalised condition. It's a human experience that has um, become much more medicalised recently. It's now classified as a disease. Um, and medics and biomedicine has become much more interested in um, infertility as the technologies have developed. So there's things like IVF and genetic screening and so on. It's much more interest, much more medicalised now. Traditionally, or rather, I'm talking in the um, British-UK experience, it was called involuntary childlessness um, around about the 1950s and 1960s, and that term was a sort of sociological term. That's now changed. It's, it's now referred to as infertility because of all this medicalisation. Um, really, we're still a pronatist society, um, with men and women both expected to reproduce. That's their, their kind of still, for most people, that's a, a role that is expected. But for women, it's not just um, reproducing. It also shapes their cultural role as well. Motherhood is, is to do with parenting and to, to do with their social um, role. Um, and, of course, this inability to meet these um, cultural roles... Um, is, is seen as a failure or for the people might be seen as a failure to meet this cultural norm and because of that there's quite a lot of helplessness and stigmatisation um, infertility of course is also an interrupted life course, it's not what people expect to happen to them um, we all, lots of people have, have um, projected life um, plans and when this is interrupted of course there's great feelings of loss and grief and bereavement and again, I'm sure um, a lot of you know about this. Um, but now there are treatments, so assisted reproductive treatments, that are available. Um, and in some ways that legitimises the um, infertility in society, but it's also a double-edged sword because it's all to do with diagnosing um, failure and finding the causes of the problems. And this just seeks to reinforce those feelings of, of um, stigmatisation. And that means that quite often for a lot of people who um, have infertility or infertility issues, they have a hidden infertile self. So it's not something that people project very much to the rest of the culture or to their friends and family. So it's quite a, a, a hidden feeling. And I would suggest that um, infertility and miscarriage have quite a few similarities. Similarities of the loss and grief that are involved also the stigmatisation, again, because uh, miscarriage is, is not what's supposed to happen, it's, it's, um, it's not a norm. And again, um, miscarriage is, is frequently hidden in our society, although interestingly, I, at, the, um, at the end of last week I noticed on Google that um, 
uh, the Miscarriage Association had done, had, a woman had made a film about miscarriage and she was calling it The Last Taboo. I think there's lots of things that we call The Last Taboo in, in, in the UK and society. Um, but certainly they were saying that, um, oh, sorry, this woman was saying that um, when, when you come pregnant, you're quite often told not to talk about it until at least 12 weeks. So that makes it very difficult then if you, if you do miscarry. You haven't told anybody that you can't share that with, with many people. Um, miscarriage and infertility are also in, embodied experiences as well. The, 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 the feelings of failure, um, of, of not achieving the, the norm, the cultural norm, and also particularly in miscarriage of your body letting you down. And it's, of course, embodied not just in feelings, but it's a tangible experience as well with miscarriage. There's the, um, the physical um, aspects to, to miscarriage too. So um, I just want to talk a little bit about miscarriage and assisted reproduction, which is my uh, background, really. Miscarriage isn't, incre- isn't increased as such with um, assisted reproductive technologies, um, but infertility and miscarriage are both increased with increasing maternal age. So consequently, um, miscarriage is seen more often in the um, IVF clinics. And in pregnant women, people who become pregnant following ART, um, they equate miscarriage with IVF failure. Not They don't see it as a, something that's quite normal, that miscarriage is quite a common thing but it's still equated with the failure of the IVF process itself. I'm using, I'm, I know I'm, I've got a tendency to interchange ART and IVF. It's because IVF is the main technology that's used within assisted reproduction. Rather confusingly, the um, IVF clinics tend to equate pregnancy sometimes with sort of success. Oh, sorry, of course they equate pregnancy with success, but it, they tend to equate just pregnancy with success. So you'll quite often see in the um, uh, league tables, effectively, of clinics, they quite often compare pregnancy rates, and that's a way of seeing whether how successful the clinics are. But of course that doesn't include people who then go on to miscarry. Um, and also sometimes um, the clinicians within the clinics do tend to talk about... Um, Pregnancy, even if it then results in miscarriage as being um, successful, they say things like, well, at least it's demonstrated that you can become pregnant, so it's a, a good thing. But clearly it's, not a, it's still an incredibly difficult thing if those, those pregnancies go on to miscarry. Um, ART and miscarriage, the uh, couples tend to blame themselves. They seek reasons for the miscarriage. I think this is true of miscarriage anyway, but they tend to question the treatments themselves. So looking for reasons if, to see if maybe it's something that happened in the IVF that's caused the miscarriage. And of course I've put physical symptoms here. By What I mean by that is that um, in ART and IVF, you know very, very early whether you're pregnant or not. So they're seeking, or not, they're not seeking, but they're, they're recognising those symptoms of pregnancy and, again, possible miscarriage very, very early on. So as early as two weeks after conception, because they all know they're pregnant at that point. I just wanted to talk a little bit about gender as well. So um, ART, so things like IVF, tend to be um, conducted on the female body, and that basically just facilitates this idea that um, infertility is a female responsibility, and so are the treatments. Um, 
men tend to be marginalised in the process and they're sort of seen as the second sex sometimes. They're not really involved as much. IVF treatments tend to be, um, even if, the, if they're treated as a couple, a man and a woman, um, the woman's name is always first. Most of the processes occur on her body. All the drugs, a lot of the invasive procedures, the egg collection and so on, is, is using her body, which then becomes quite objectified and Objectified in that way. Um, for men, though, it's, it's uh, clearly still very difficult. Um, the sperm collection procedure, for example, is a very specifically timed intervention that can cause great feelings of anxiety and sometimes impotence. Um, and indeed, there um, other times um, procedures such as surgical sperm retrieval are indeed very um, invasive for the men as well. Um, they also, uh, it's quite hidden for men going through this, um, through ART, because of the conflation with impotence. So again, it's not something that's they probably find it very easy to talk about, even if they do have um, great family or friend support. Um, there's also some interesting um, aspects to do with time and ageing as well, with um, assisted reproductive technologies. So the idea of... Um, women ageing in society is still um, continued. It's quite exacerbated, really, because the reproductive life of a woman is still quite fixed. So you get to about 40, and, and then the fertility treatments are, are not as successful. Men, using um, ICSI, which is the um, sperm injection procedure which gets, uh, um, overcomes male um, factor infertility, has meant that um, men are able to, to father pregnancies far beyond their, their normal reproductive age. And of course that causes dis disruptions with the life course, um, the normal life course and, and the power relationships with that. Um, there isn't very, well I couldn't find very much information out there about um, men's feelings about miscarriage following assisted reproduction, um, apart from a couple of, of uh, reports. What they kept, their um, results were that the men were basically felt that they had to, to be strong for their partner to provide the emotional support, um, whereas actually their lived experience for them was again this this thing about self blame, their loss of identity as, as potential parent or father, um, and this idea again about they're having to hide their grief, although they still felt it clearly as strongly. So I'm going to talk a little bit about assisted reproduction now. Um, so first of all, who's a fertility patient? I just I can't even remember where I got this picture from, but it's the kind of um, I think is seen the fertility patient is seen as a heterosexual couple, quite wealthy usually, maybe a bit older, sometimes slightly selfish maybe I think is seen as delaying motherhood and so on, but. Clearly, there's lots of people that are fertility patients, and they're not always um, this cliche, really. There's same-sex couples, people who are preserving their, their fertility um, pre-cancer treatments, people with genetic conditions trying to avoid passing those on to, to children. And, of course, it includes um, people that we're interested in today, so um, miscarriage patients as well. I went to the um, Human Fertilisation and Embryo Authority website. They're the people that licence and regulate fertility treatment in the UK. 
to find out what they kind of think of as being a fertility um, patient. And um, I've said here this thing about diagnosis required. So um, the idea being that, again, um, infertility being something that's medicalised, it needs a, or rather the treatments need a diagnosis, they need a, a reason to be, to be providing medical care. You can see there's loads of different um, reasons that they come up with here. Um, I think it's quite interesting that one thing is um, having had more than one miscarriage, which doesn't really seem like it's a particularly uh, general reason to, to be causing infertility. And there's also, of course, this thing under the women, um, no identifiable reasons. And there's a lot of people who they don't have a diagnosis, as such a medical diagnosis. But clearly there's lots of... of um, medical reasons why people um, do have treatment and they're completely, uh, you know, fine. Um, this uh, is the IVF referral reason from the unit in Oxford for the last five years. And you can see that um, this big uh, blue segment at the top is unex what they call unexplained, so there's no diagnosis for these, these people. And also the other thing, of course, is that the male factor... Um, Again, this business about um, infertility still is really seen as predominantly a female problem, but actually worldwide, somewhere between a third and, and a half of, of causes of infertility are, are male, or at least combined factors. And you can see there's some other um, the smaller segments and um, more sociological reasons, I guess, for, for seeking treatment. So things like same-sex couples, or interestingly enough, the dark blue one, which is female age, like this is a, a you know a pathological thing. Aging is aging. So very briefly, just tell you about what happens with IVF. I don't know how much you all know, but um, as a general procedure, there's uh, a period of, at the top of the box of referrals, investigations, consultations, which can all take quite a long time. And then on the right-hand side, I've got the things that are very difficult about um, infertility treatments. It's well known to be um, very stressful, emotionally demanding and very expensive. Um, there are a lot of drugs, medications, scans, tests, all quite invasive things. There's also risks which um, are talked about but um, sort of pushed to one side slightly. So the risks of the drugs themselves, sometimes of the procedures, um, and then the outcomes as well, so multiple pregnancy, atopic pregnancies and so on. In IVF, what happens, and once the treatment starts, it takes about seven weeks, Is um, and again, this is mainly for the woman. There's, um, they take a lot of drugs to down-regulate the ovaries, first of all, stimulate the ovaries to produce more eggs, <coughs> excuse me, the eggs are collected, which is a surgical procedure. Um, some sperm is obtained, which again is this, this point which is time critical. The men have to produce sperm at that particular time. The eggs are fertilised and then um, the embryos are transferred. That's about a seven-week period. And then afterwards there's a pregnancy test. And okay. So um, down-regulation of the ovaries is um, effectively taking the hormonal control away so we take control so the IVF unit so they take control then they can then stimulate the ovaries to stop the normal hormones hormonal cycles from working I've said that IVF in particular is technological and I've just taken these slides um, from 
a presentation that used to be given to potential patients at um, the fertility unit. I just thought it was quite interesting because they are emphasising the technology that is there for IVF. So they're sort of saying, oh, look, there's an IVF laboratory, here's an incubator, there's a microscope. This is a uh, picture of uh, fertilisation, which I just think is quite interesting because I suspect for quite a lot of people, fertilisation is quite a um, potentially quite a mystical process. It's all miraculous, and here it is in the biological form. And again, similar sort of thing. Where does life begin? This is um, embryo development that um, these patients are shown pictures of. So it's sort of slightly distancing the process, or certainly it's changing it, I think, by seeing the technology and seeing what it does. This is, I've talked about, so the, at this point, this is the thing about managing IVF outcomes. So, following embryo transfer, there's a two-week waiting process before the people can do pregnancy tests, and they do that at home, so it's quite a distant process. They're, they're away from the, um, the unit where they've had their treatments. They do their pregnancy test. They then phone the units. If it's negative, um, they're offered a review and then potentially go back and have another cycle. If it's positive, they have another long waiting period, so three weeks longer approximately, before they have a pregnancy scan. And I, I'm really just saying that I think that that period is this the thing that couples find incredibly difficult to cope with, unsurprisingly. They've got all this time waiting, maybe seeking physical symptoms and really high levels of anxiety, and potentially not very much contact with anybody. This pregnancy scan is around about seven weeks at an IVF unit. If everything's all okay, they're then discharged into the antenatal care. And really, when they're discharged into the normal antenatal care, that's at the point when most people would first be going to their GP. So it's very, very early on. So what I said earlier about the fact that, that um, people going through IVF know very early that they're pregnant, so they've got a much longer time of feeling anxious and, and being um, concerned about this pregnancy and having to wait. This slide um, came from the uh, presentation that's given to patients. Really, I'm just showing it to you because I think it's... Um, it doesn't really, well, why would it? It doesn't really ex explain the, the process, but it seems quite sort of, you know, fine. It's sort of, it's quite, um, you know, we'll f phone the unit, phone us back, let us know the results. It's either negative or positive, but that doesn't give any idea of, of, of what's going on, the feelings and so on. You probably all know this, but uh, outcomes after a positive pregnancy test, the vast majority of pregnancies will go on to produce a live birth, which is excellent, around about 75%, but there is all this loss as well, so um, miscarriages and early loss um, are a significant number of these pregnancies. Ectopic pregnancy not, in, not where it should be, so it's outside the uterus, so usually in the fallopian tubes, and it's, it can't survive. It's, yeah. I'm not expecting you to, to read this slide, um, but um, it was just an example of um, somebody at the Oxford Fertility Unit who was talking about what happened to them after they, um, they, had, a, they had a miscarriage after their pregnancy. So it was their third IVF cycle, and they talk about how um, 
they're convinced that this, this cycle um, is going to work, so they had some hope with that. And then they were you know, amazed, really, really pleased, obviously, to, that they were pregnant. And they came in for their eight-week scan, and they, they, the thing that they're emphasising is the fact that they were so relieved to find out that, that this pregnancy was okay. But then five minutes later, whoever was doing the scan realised that the pregnancy was actually two weeks earlier, so it was, the, the pregnancy was only six weeks. Um, in size, and and so it wasn't okay anymore. So they'd gone from this sort of ex- ecstatic feeling to this despair again. Um, and they said so they don't. They know that no- nothing would have changed. The outcome would have changed, but they had their relief shattered just by this sort of five minutes of somebody realising that it was the, the wrong date. Really, they t- came back. So they had their long period of waiting again. They had to wait another ten weeks. Uh, sorry, ten days to come back for another scan. And when they came back, they found out that the baby hadn't survived, and they hadn't heard nobody had phoned them or anything in that period. I'm sure this is. I really hope this is just a kind of quite a um, isolated case, but I think again it just emphasises that thing about the the time and the waiting um, with the miscarriage. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about m- the emotions, sort of managing the emotions within the clinic. So ART is I've keep saying is technologically very complex but it's not perceived as as that by the people who are who are giving the providing the um, IVF and the ART um, who reframe the processes as completely normal even though they're very invasive and disrupting but then they're still not experienced as as normal by the people going through them um, this whole area is something that's normally very private um, and we also know that IVF um, and other technologies themselves are problematic. So there are greater levels of um, depression and anxiety and so on following the treatments. The technology objectifies the processes and they have to do that to aid the management. But everything becomes quite objective. So, for example, pregnancy scans are, are very early and they're seen on the screen and counting the numbers of eggs and so on. It's, it's all very, very objective. Um, the nursing routines have changed to, to cope with this, really, so that as they're using the technology, and it means that the patients become ever more distal, really. They're not, they don't have as much contact, physical contact or caring contact with the nurses as perhaps they, they might want or certainly do in some other um, situations. Um, the other thing is that patients tend to self-identify as infertile even after they have made the transition to parenthood. There's been quite a lot of research about this. Um, and that process um, is obviously changing all the time with the different um, relationships and the social relationships that these, these couples have. But it's a different relationship to the transition for parenthood for people within the normal population who haven't had um, ART. So they still maintain this infertile self, even once they're parents. So that can sometimes cause problems as well. And I've, I've just said here with this slide that um, ART and miscarriage, and I called it careless, and I, I don't know if I'm being unkind really, but I think sometimes it's quite casual. It seems that the clinics are fairly casual in their, um, when they talk about um, miscarriage sometimes. Um, I've said about this before, about the fact that pregnancy is early identification in the um, ART clinics 
with these early scans and testing, and that makes it ever more difficult for the, the people to cope with it. Um, and we know that the anxiety for the pregnancy is increased in these, this population. We've already said this thing about the language of, of pregnancy. Even miscarriage is sometimes seen as a, an advantage for the treatments. Um, and there is this practice gap between IVF and antenatal care. So there's a bit of a time between leaving an IVF clinic and then becoming under the control of uh, control under the um, the care of a of a midwife, for example. There's this this gap and a lack of, sometimes a sort of lack of knowledge of infertility for the the people that look after um, pregnant pregnant women. I wanted really briefly to talk about um, IVF and multiple pregnancy because we know that multiple pregnancies have got a higher miscarriage rate and yet IVF is, um, contributes um, enormously to the uh, multiple pregnancy rates, um, certainly in the UK. So the, there is a policy now of the HFEA um, to try and get clinics to reduce the rate down to about 10% of their um, pregnancies. It was as over 20%, so it's very, very, very high, um, and they're trying to reduce it down. It's very difficult for them, though, because the awareness of the risk for multiple pregnancies is quite low um, with the IVF patients. Um, multiple pregnancies... Uh, sorry, tran multiple transfers, so... When they transfer an embryo back into a woman's womb, they try to transfer one embryo to try and make it a singleton pregnancy, but often two are transferred because it's a way of improving the pregnancy rate. And patients find this very difficult because clearly their desire is to have a pregnancy and, and, and an outcome. Finance comes into this. If you can only afford one IVF cycle, why wouldn't you think that you, you want to put two embryos back? It's, it's kind of logical. Um, so it's quite common for um, couples to desire twins, um, even though, for example, the miscarriage rates, and we know that the obstetric outcomes and so on, are, are much poorer. I tried to find out um, some information about... Um, miscarriage and after infertility treatment and I really couldn't find out I think I said before there isn't very much literature out there there is this one um, study which is a phenomenological study of eight women um, four of which had two or more miscarriages and all the rest had had one so in-depth interviews over the telephone which is quite interesting um, but they came out with an overall um, conclusion which was that women universally look to another pregnancy as a solution to grief usually following miscarriage the thing that sometimes helps is to look for another pregnancy but of course for um, women who are having IVF or um, infertility this possibility isn't a certainty they can't guarantee that that's going to happen again and they have a real fear of never conceiving again or never giving birth. And the other themes that came out with this um, report were this idea of having to go back to square one. So they'd already gone through a long process of overcoming the sorry, infertility in the first place to become pregnant and then miscarrying. So they'd gone from despair of being infertile or having the label of infertile the elation to become pregnant and then the despair again and then having to go all the way back um, to the beginning again, which were they saying it's launching another long road, it's going to be a long process. 
<clears throat> there's a struggle between hope and hope, hopelessness. Um, one of the women said, there's no comparison for women who have ever had a successful pregnancy. Mis miscarriage for me could mean no children ever. So not only is miscarriage awful and f full of grief for these women, but they, they just might never get pregnant again. The other themes are probably similar to um, miscarriage in the general population. So the idea of running out of time, both literally and figuratively. Um, however, for people having um, IVF treatment and so on, they also mean they're running out of literal time, as in these were American women who I think, I, I don't know, but I think they don't have as many um, annual leave days and so on, and they literally didn't have enough days left to use to, to go through their treatments. Um, feelings of anger, of lack of understanding, they really just wanted to, to tell somebody about this, didn't want any answers particularly, they just wanted to talk about it. Again, this feeling of guilt as well, that they might have somehow caused the miscarriage. Feeling very alone, again, because of this stigmatisation. Numb, and then, but at the end there was quite a positive um, uh, outcome really conclusion it was that gaining some sort of strength from adversity quite often with their cup with their um, partner as well trying to trying to <coughs> overcome these feelings so that's I've got some sources if you if anybody's interested um, after that so that was my kind of general bit so I've got a little bit of time I think I was just going to talk a little bit about my research as well if you want me to shall I carry on <laughs> So uh, my um, so I'm uh, doing a PhD at the moment, and um, what what my PhD is a longitudinal ethnographic study of couples when they first start infertility treatments, or they're first thinking about starting them. And um, I decided to do this really because when I first started working at um, or was being based at the um, clinic in Oxford, I could see that there's all these interesting things going on that I was thinking if, if it was me there would be lots and lots of decisions and, and I, I think I thought it was a very difficult process so um, these are some, this is my mind map right at the beginning so um, again I, what I'm trying to do is to look at the experiences from their point of view um, it's a qualitative ethnographic research study and I want to look at the social processes of negotiating fertility treatments and starting out seeing what happens right at the very beginning and the research question is what's the lived experience for these couples and how does this experience change over time so um, I've used um, a conceptual metaphor of a journey which is a very common one really to um, help my understanding really of, of what's going on and infertility journey is a really common saying if you, if you again do a sort of quick Google search, um, it comes up frequently when they're talking about um, IVF clinics, and it's arranged in quite a linear fashion, though. We sort of start at the point of diagnosis, go forward, have treatment, get to the end point. So it's very, very straight line. But uh, patients as well, couples frequently talk about the journey. They recognise that they're starting out at one point, and things will happen to them as they go through this process. I think they're recognising that it's not a, a, a straightforward procedure. Um, it's almost inevitable, though, that, um, that, that couples who um, are, are seeking some sort of treatment or help for their infertility will turn to the medical profession. It's, it's become the norm now. 
I've said again here this thing about the treatments becoming ever more distal and um, technological and the fact that the treatments themselves cause all sorts of um, problems as well, anxiety and depression and so on, relationship breakdown, it's very well known that these things happen. But I wanted to look at the everyday experience of these couples um, as they as they encountered, um, or rather as they first sought to change their status of being infertile. Um, so my uh, participants were couples who were intent- att- attended a hospital-based fertility clinic. So that's right at the beginning. They've gone to their GP, said that they can't become pregnant and they want to want to do something about it. So they've been referred on. This is where I first encountered them. Um, and what I, if they agreed to participate, then they came into my study um, after that at this first appointment, and then I followed them through all the um, subsequent appointments that they had. And I thought it was quite likely they'd been in the study for about a year. And then they'd finished, either they had a whole cycle of something like IVF, or maybe they became pregnant, or they changed their mind, or they left the process. So that was, that was how um, people ended being in the study. Um, and the design, because it's longitudinal, allowed me to go back and have repeat interviews with the same couples. Uh, this I'm not really expecting you all to read this, but this was at the top. I've got the infertile couple, and then the first point where they, they um, come into my study and then I didn't really know what was going to happen after that, whether they were going to go and have <coughs> excuse me, IVF treatment or, or some other treatments or leave it. But there are all these potential places where I was going to um, interview them again. So in the end, um, I had 14 couples who took part and there were these repeated rounds of observation and interviews. And I had, as it happens, there were 22 of each. Um, and I was able to use participant observation because I work in a clinic as well. So that was quite easy for me to, to be part of the clinic and to be able to um, do some observations. Um, and I took some field notes at the same time to try and to keep a bit of reflexivity there. Um, the data collection period was quite long. I'm doing my PhD part-time, which proved to be quite a good thing because it meant that my data collection period was 18 months in total, so I could carry on doing it for quite a long time. And I'm sorry about the journey um, <laughs> theme again, but um, I'm carrying on using this because I think it's quite a good way of explaining what happens. So I've got this, this idea of the seeking the medical help being the sort of approach like an aeroplane. So you deciding you're going to do something and then you've got this sort of landing slot. So you've got this, this consultation, which is what you think is going to possibly take you to the destination that you want to go to. They've got this idea of it being quite a... Um, a, a, a gateway to somewhere else but actually what happens is that these people are then in a kind of holding pattern all sorts of things happen that they have to go back and discuss and, and, and go backwards and forwards not being able to really move on at this point not only with the diagnosis and the investigations but deciding whether they want to do IVF or whether they can do it as well funding is obviously really important here um, because lots of people might want it but they just simply can't, can't afford it um, they've got deciding whether to go ahead because of the risks. They might decide that they don't want to seek medical treatment. They change their mind and decide that they're, they're going to um, not go, in, go forward with the process. Age, of course, as we touched on earlier, is really important as well. This, this becomes a, a deeply um, difficult uh, thing to recognise, really, that the time is often running out, but they still don't want to necessarily move forward with doing anything about it because it's a really difficult decision. So the background, I called it jet lag, but it's just fatigue. It's this 
time and effort and emotional stress really of, of making a decision about going somewhere with the process. And then finally, leaving this, this holding pattern period is, is to something else. What's the destination? Is it going forward for IVF, waiting a bit further, becoming pregnant anyway? Um, I'm going to talk really quickly through this bit because I haven't got much time left. So the approach part is the uh, seeking medical help. So clearly it's an unwanted situation and the, the reason for it is, for most people, clearly the desire for parenthood and to complete their families. They've got this imagined future life plan. Um, but they've already, even the first time that I met them, they'd already been waiting for quite a long time. Usually it's around about two years before people get referred on. So they've already had a long period of time of, of wanting this outcome and for it not to have happened. The consultation, the first consultation, medical consultation, was keenly anticipated. It was something that everybody really wanted not necessarily knowing what was going to happen there. They just had it as a kind of gateway to something ha else happening. Um, so they, they saw it as the start of something, um, but they didn't, didn't know what was going to happen at the consultation. And actually, what happened at the consultation was often more uncertainty. Um, the... Um, explanation diagnosis became very important but but often the other thing that happened was that they realized that there weren't any options really so they wanted options different things to do but kind of there aren't it's it's pretty much IVF or nothing um, so that quite a lot of them came away saying that's that's what they came out with the idea that they were told it was either IVF or kind of nothing that seemed to be the next step um, this is um, there are quite a lot of themes about IVF itself, the fact that it's becoming common, it's much more expected, but it's still this technological procedure. It's not normal and it's not um, perceived as such for the people who are going through it, even though it's presented as being quite a kind of straightforward um, process. And then funding is a deeply difficult um, situation. Lots of people are not funded for IVF, so it's kind of it's the only option, but they, they simply can't have it. And this, this is about um, fatigue, really. It's relentless. It's always there, the desire for, their, um, to, for them to continue their families or for parenthood is, is there in the background. And also the idea of um, the tests and the investigations and so on as being quite repetitive, very physical, so it's very demanding. And then, so this is after my, again, the, the initial um, consultation. This is the, the first interviews. So even after the consultation, they were still feeling very uncertain. Um, and that was the, the main outcome, really. They didn't know what they were going to do after that. <coughs> I showed you aeroplanes earlier. <laughs> but originally, I thought that the medical consultation um, was like a junction box on a road, which I think is quite a good analogy as well. Because it's this idea of there being several possibilities... And, but you can change direction and so on. But sometimes the actual junction box itself, which is the medical consultation, is the cause of unexpected delays or may change where you want to go at the junction. And then for my project now, I've got to just carry on doing a load more um, data analysis before I come up with some um, con more concrete conclusions. 
and that's the end of my stub in my talk actually so I just want to thank everybody at the unit and, and my supervisors and patients as well at the IVF unit and um, thank you very much if anybody's got any questions I'll be happy to take thank you.